0: How about if I throw out a few things and you tell me what sounds interesting to you? Um, threshold moments. Uh, the Probably the most obvious one that I wrote about was when I left home, which you mentioned the decision to go to college. Uh, I don't know if I th- knew I was on a threshold at that moment fully. I didn't know what college was. So there's not a grand story there. Like, well, I knew education was important and I just had this conviction to follow it no matter what. I didn't. And I was like, that sounds better than working in this junkyard, which is miserable. So I'm gonna go there you sit all day right and read books that sounds fine (laughs) i don't know how inspiring it is but uh let's see you'd mentioned religion because i grew up very religious Uh, i grew up mormon kind of a more extreme version of mormonism and then i stopped being mormon when i was i must have been around 21 or 22 um that was a slow gradual process for me though there there wasn't really a moment where i you know in the morning was mormon and then in the evening wasn't it was an incredibly slow over over years kind of change but we could we could try to talk about that or probably the more uh, significant one for me the the weightier one the heavier one is um kind of like when i stopped being religious and that similar to losing my faith as a mormon was a really slow it's such a process you know nobody wakes up on a tuesday morning and thinks today i'll become strange like it's very slow
1: my name is jordan kissner and this is thresholds a series of conversations with writers about experiences that completely turned them upside down disoriented them in their lives changed them and changed how and why they wanted to write Hi, everybody. Jordan here. Welcome back to Thresholds. I hope that this recording is finding you well and healthy and safe and full up with good snacks and things to see, read, listen to, watch. And I'm so excited to add to that list of entertainment um, this conversation that I had with Tara Westover, the author of the memoir Educated, about her childhood and young adulthood as the daughter of Mormon isolationists in Idaho. Um, A quick primer on that book for anyone who hasn't read it, though it would seem that most of America has read it, but in Educated, Tara describes growing up really isolated, really off the grid. So her family lived in rural Idaho. She and her brothers and sisters did not get birth certificates, did not go to the doctor, did not go to school. The first time that Tara ever set foot in a classroom was after she had decided to leave home, having secretly studied to take the exams that could get her into Brigham Young University. And so I was really excited to have this conversation with Tara because I thought that her book was so full of the kinds of seminal moments that we talk about on thresholds. And I thought perhaps going into this conversation that we would be talking about her decision to leave home because that in her book is one of the biggest moments of departure and before and after. But something really funny happened in this conversation where uh, I asked Tara what she wanted to talk about and she said, oh, we could talk about that. Or we could talk about this. Or I guess we could talk about this third thing. And then it became very clear that the third thing was the real amazing shit. Am I allowed to say shit on this podcast? Whatever. Fuck it. It's my podcast. And that's a pattern actually that I've seen in a lot of these conversations with writers where people often come in and they think they have a subject that they're supposed to talk about. There's kind of an obvious threshold that they feel they are expected to recite on. But actually, if you poke a little, there's something kind of like niggling around at the corners of their minds that is the real live spot, the real humming, vibrating, cool, liminal thing. And I'm hesitant to make any kind of pat metaphor out of this idea that the the threshold you're not thinking about is the one that's really the most important. But I do find it kind of a neat pattern that in a lot of these conversations, the m- most fertile spot is the one that hasn't necessarily come across most strongly to the reader. What Tara wanted to talk about wasn't what I thought she was going to want to talk about based on having read her book. And that's become one of my favorite things about these conversations. And so maybe I will formulate this as a wish for you if you are listening. I wish for you that you get past the first and the second ideas in conversation with whoever you're talking to these days and get to the third one, get to the real shit. One note about this recording is that Tara very kindly invited us to her home, to her apartment in New York when we did this recording. So the sound is going to be a little different. It is not in a recording studio. We have the occasional sounds of her amazing dog. We have some Manhattan sound, and I like to think that that just adds to it.
0: I just i just have just the one name. <laughs> my name's Tara Westover. I don't really think about it. How would I introduce myself? I just use my name. I feel like everything else comes in time, right? I, I maybe wrote a book. I also have a dog. You know, these things accumulate over time. But I don't have a thing I say when I introduce myself that's like, hey, I'm Tara and I'm super into fishing, which I'm not really. But even if I were, I wouldn't. There was a, a definitely a more of a moment for me when I was at Cambridge And I'd been trying for a really long time to make a relationship with my parents functional. And I did not make a decision to become estranged from them because there's no way I would have ever chosen that at that time. But I did make a decision to take a year and just not have contact with them. That was the way I thought about it. I, I would never have been in the headspace to explain to myself that I was choosing estrangement but I just really needed a break. I just couldn't do it anymore. And so I decided uh, that, that I would just ha- take a year from them. And I wrote them and said, I, I I'm going to take a year and we're not going to have any contact and I'm going to see how I feel at the end of it. And that was a, that was definitely a change, a huge, huge change from everything that my entire approach to my parents before that was, uh, try to make this work at any cost. No matter what I have to do, I'm going to make this functional. And that was probably the first time I said, I'm not sure I have control over this, or I'm not really sure that what I do is is going to be able to fix this. I don't know. I think when you're a, a child or even a younger person and you have a really unstable relationship with your parents, it can feel like, or it certainly felt like to me that the quality of my relationship with my parents was entirely dependent on what I did. So if they were upset with me, it was because I wasn't being the right kind of daughter. So my dad and I would have these fights, uh, in the, when I was working for him in this junkyard about, it would be hot and I would wear these t-shirts, but I would roll the sleeves up, you know, so they were like sleeveless shirts. I would roll them. And that was just definitely not allowed in my family. And so we would have these little, um, kind of turf wars over you know two inches of (laughs) skin on my arm Uh, but they were just ridiculous fights that we would have and I think later when we would not get along I would think oh if I was more modest if I was following the church better if I was being a better daughter then uh, then then the relationship would work and I think I really had always believed deeply that there would come a time in the future at some point in the future and this was maybe my true religion, <laughs> that my parents and I would be at peace, that my father and I would have a peaceful relationship and we'd get along. And um and then, you know, collo- you know, disaster happened and it became kind of clear that, that that just might not, that future was probably not gonna happen. <laughs> big disaster that hit my parents and, uh, and our relationship was my brother. I had this older brother who just had a lot of problems and really needed help, but my parents just refused to see it. And around how old would I have been? I used to know this chronology and I stopped, I stopped talking about this stuff and I've forgotten it, but, um, I guess I would have been in my early 20s when my sister Said she approached me and said, "We need to talk to our parents about about Sean. Uh, he's he's dangerous. We need to we need to do something about it." And so uh, we did. And for my parents, I think that was the ultimate thing they they could not deal with. So I had this brother. He had a lot of problems with violence. He had a lot of problems with women, and they were just not able to hear that. That was not something they could hear. You know, I talked to my mother briefly or had little hints of conversations, but yeah, when it was when I confronted them in a, in a in a real way and it was again, it was started by my sister. She talked to my mother first and then and then I talked to her. That happened at Cambridge. And so I was I was a long ways away and you know, it was one of those there's like an, there's an alternate reality where that happened differently and when I first told my mother, she took it really seriously and she believed me. And she said, "Yeah, everybody, everybody knows that this has been a problem." And and she apologized in a way that to me was really moving because um, I think when I was younger, when I was a teenager, and my my brother would be behaving in this way or doing these things that were, you know, violent and upsetting, and he would call me terrible things. And um, his nickname for me was uh, was whore which is – that really imprints on you when you're 15, 16 years old and you've had a certain kind of uh, religious education. And so I think I'd always kind of imagined that my parents knew about this and that they were okay with it and that that was because they were – they just felt that that was just. They thought that that was fair, that that was happening or that it was okay. And um, there was a kind of of magic that happened when I told my mother – this and she you know she wouldn't have said oh my god because mormons don't say oh my god but she more or less said if i were going to sum up her reaction it would be oh my god that's unbelievably bad and i'm so sorry and i really wish i really wish that i had been a different parent to you and i think there was this kind of glimpse of everything working out and uh like they were going to be sorry and then he was going to get help and everything was going to be put back together and um, as if it had never been broken. And then that future kind of vanished because my father just wouldn't deal with it, just would not confront the reality. And then my mother, who always, ultimately always followed my father when he decided he didn't believe it and that I was making it up or there was a period where he said I was possessed. That was his explanation for why I was saying what I said. Um, That just vanished, you know, that whole other future vanished. But It vanishing did not mean that I didn't still believe in it pretty deeply and keep trying to make it come to pass. And the fact that I'd been so close to having it made me believe in it all the more because I'd seen it. I knew it was possible. And so I I pursued it for probably another year or even maybe two years where my parents actively believed I was possessed by a demon. And I was still trying to see them and convince them that that this – that the relationship was good and that I was good and that I was someone that they wanted and loved. And it just, it's, I think the threshold moment for me, there was no part of me that was willing to give up on that future, but I had reached such an unhealthy, miserable psychological state that uh, all I knew was I can't do this right now. So I need a break for a year. I should, I should a break. I'm going to clear my head for a year. And then, and then, Go back into the battle. Only I never did. When did that occur to you?
1: Like, what happened that you finally arrived at the thought? I just need a break right now.
0: Probably the best way to describe it is a mental breakdown. I think I more or less had a mental breakdown. Uh, I was a PhD student at Cambridge. Which, if you're gonna have a mental breakdown, that is a really nice place and time to do it. <laughs> like, you know, it's just very, it's very convenient to be a student and have a little stipend rather than a job. Because, you know, if you're a PhD student, you can just kind of disappear for three or four months and have a breakdown. And, uh, you know, you don't get fired and you don't lose your housing and uh, the world doesn't come crumbling down. So, in retrospect, I say it sarcastically, but I also mean it very sincerely. It's a wonderful time and place to completely lose your mind. Like If you really need to do that, and I really did, uh, yeah, go do a PhD. It's a good time to just fall apart.
1: Just so I have the chronology right, did you have a have your mental breakdown as a PhD student? Conveniently, before the moment when you said, "I need a break," or did you say, "I need a break" so that I can go away and do this?
0: Uh, the mental breakdown happened and happened for a while, and I was kind of in denial about it. I mean, things that now I say them, and it sounds so insane that I just I had no idea. I, I thought, "Oh, I'm struggling a little bit, but I'm fine," and um. But yeah, the kinds I, – I didn't do any work on my PhD for the better part of a year and um, I would have these – I can really only describe them as night terrors where I would just wake up in the middle of the night and I would be having some really intense dream about my – usually about my dad pursuing me in some way and I would wake up uh, in the street. You know, I would not wake up in my room. I would have, and my, my, my lovely boyfriend at the time, Drew, uh, would be like running after me, you know, because <laughs> I would be running down the road, just screaming, running from this dream I was having. I would wake up maybe half a block from my house, having gotten out of bed, gotten out of the room, gotten out of the apartment, gotten out of the building, and be in the street, and, and Drew would be chasing after me, you know, like, wake up, wake up. And I did that for a while. Uh, before I realized oh I'm I'm not well actually I really need help with this. And um yeah, it sounds so obvious I was having a I was also watching about twenty hours of TV a day, which you know, why that didn't clue me in that I wasn't well is another good question. Um but I think it really came to a head. I think the nightmare started when I was with Drew and then it didn't it did what happened is I went to Harvard for a fellowship and Drew went to the Middle East. For his, he did a Fulbright, and um, that's when things got really crazy. That's when the twenty hours Drew would have noticed if I was watching twenty hours of TV when we were together and would have intervened. But um, after he went to the Middle East and I went to Harvard, and I was living on my own, and that's uh, that's where the distance became non optional. Like I I needed. The way I, w- I would think about it now is that I, I felt like I had this incredible amount of control over my feelings, which was a a point of great pride for me at the time. I thought I'm fine because I can control how I feel all the time. And then what was happening was that I could not control it when I was asleep. And so I started really dreading going to sleep because it was the one time that I would this kind of. Things would would break through, and and I would have to feel how I actually felt because I wasn't in control of it when I was asleep. And uh, now, now it seems like oh, you needed you needed to lose control a little bit. That was that was what had to, that was what needed to happen. But at the time, I I thought of it as kind of a failure. Like I couldn't control this anymore, and I felt like I was supposed to be able to. I thought being able to control it meant that I was okay, and. Uh, it's it's taken me a while to realize um, locking away things that you need to feel, even if you can control them, it's not necessarily mean that you're okay. It might be the exact thing that means you're not okay.
1: So when in there did you think I need to write this email to my parents?
0: Uh, it's I wish I had a really good dramatic story um (laughs) you don't need to have one they were all pretty dramatic but i don't remember why there was just one that was enough it was it was dramatic enough it was actually before i went to harvard uh so i was still i drew and i were living together in the uk in cambridge in the uk and um i don't know i think it was just after one of these i just woke up after one of these nightmares and uh i think for me it was that loss of control was really terrifying i hadn't I hadn't yet learned that that loss of control is a step that you take on the on the path to something like healing. Um, So I thought that the loss of control was bad. And in my mind, I was going to get the distance from them so that I could regain the control and be fine again, (laughs) which is not how I would describe uh, healing anymore. But that's certainly what I thought I was going for at the time. So I think I there was a point where I realized I'm losing my mind. I'm losing my ability to deal with this and control it and keep it at bay. So I just, it did not feel optional. I guess is how I'd put it. it. it felt, it felt like the thing that had to happen. It wasn't, wasn't a good option. I didn't like it. I felt an indescribable amount of guilt about it. You know, just, uh, did not feel like a thing that you're allowed to say to your parents but it was just necessary it just needed to happen did they write back to you my mother did my dad didn't um it's funny I, I can't recall what the email was precisely i think she i think she more or less begged me not to do it and um but i i think i'd i'd lost faith in the in the i'd lost a little bit of faith in that that the resolution was possible i i guess lost faith is maybe the wrong term because I think of faith as you should have faith in things that are good to believe in. But I actually don't think believing in that was good for me. There's a line that I read in a book recently where someone said, um, sometimes you might have to give up on the myth of a good childhood in order to have a good adulthood, which is not exactly applicable to this situation, but a little bit applicable in the sense that I think I needed, I needed to give up the, the belief in that other future. And probably in another version of the past, but especially in that version of the future, I needed to give up faith in that in order to have faith in something else, in a different future that didn't have that and start actually trying to imagine my life, um, a life that would be good, that I would want, that might not be the life I would choose, but uh, that didn't didn't have my parents in it. Was there
1: a moment when you realized that it was going to be more permanent and it wasn't just something you were going to do for now until you got control of the situation again?
0: I think, you know, what happened is there was just, there was just a year where I didn't talk to them and I didn't write them and I didn't engage with the situation. And I went to a fair bit of therapy and I tried to write my PhD and I, I just tried to get a grip <laughs> more or less. I was just trying to get a grip. And, um, and at the end of the, and I didn't think about it. I I don't think I thought it would be permanent. I don't think, I never could have done it if I thought it'd be permanent. The guilt would have crushed me. But uh, at the end of the year, I felt so much better. And I felt as close to peace as I ever had in my life. And I think what's important about the year is that it just established for me that another life was possible that I could have a year without seeing them, without talking to them, and I could build a life that was worth having, even if it wasn't the life I would have picked. It wasn't the ideal outcome, but I could I could have a year, and I could be on my own without my family, and, and I could have a life that was good, and it was good, and I mean, I, you know, I was still struggling, but uh, compared to the year before, it was so much better, and when I got to the end of that year, and I started thinking about, what it would mean to pick back up with the relationship. i The only thing I could say about it is it felt tired. Just this overwhelming feeling of exhaustion would come over me. It's just like, I can't do that. I just can't do it. And so that's probably at the end of the year is when it started to occur to me, what if this is an answer? What if this thing that I put in place to be temporary just give me a couple months to like recover. What if that's the answer for me is to just live in this permanent state of – because the point of the year was to take care of myself. That was the why was. I have to take care of myself for a year so that you can beat me up again. And, uh, and then at the end of the year, I was like, but wait, what if I just kept taking care of myself? What would that be like? And you could make a whole life out of taking care of yourself and not continually – subjecting yourself to this old war you know you could you could just do that and that was kind of that was a little bit mind blowing for me to think yeah what if this could just be my operating principle that i will do this because it's because i need it and and not not worry so much about uh what i owe to the to, to other people and just think about myself sounds very selfish when you lay it out like that
1: i mean less so when you consider how like what the debt how you're defining self-care in this moment, which is to say like I'm gonna not put myself in the relation in a relationship or in a situation where people are saying horrible things to me.
0: Yeah, or there's danger of violence or like all the rest of it, but I uh, know you're uh, you're right. it's um, but I guess to me it sounded very selfish. Now it sounds a little bit more common sense, but at the time it it sounded and I, I'd never, I'd never been able to consider that before. What? Yeah, what if I just live my life saying um, I have the right to pursue happiness and I have the right to insist on my own safety? Like these are non-negotiable things for me. And what if I just started making decisions where those things are not on the table? Those things have to be a given. And uh, what's possible if those things are a given? And the answer was I, I could not have any kind of regular contact with my parents. That was the answer. If if I was gonna insist on safety, there could be no contact with my parents because there would be contact with my brother and that was a bad idea. So uh, it sounds like a, for some people that would probably be very obvious that those principles, but for me, they were not. And I think for a lot of people, they're not actually. You, you grow up and you have a certain, I, I tend to think people who've been in toxic relationships that sense of self and that sense of having a right to self-care is what gets eroded like that's the thing that gets taken and uh the only way to restore it is to try to get it back but uh it's you know for those people for me it was really tough and so i think that threshold that moment of saying oh i'm just going to i'm just going to have a year for myself but then it's going to be i'm going to go right back to the it was it was the only way that I could do it was to tell myself it was temporary, even though it's it's now been, um, you know, probably seven, seven years or something. You know, it's been a chunk of time.
1: Do you feel like that changed the way you became a writer or you decided to write about the experience. I'm like interested in the connection between deciding to take your own needs and safety seriously and the fact that you then wrote this, store authored this story in the way that you did. Do you think you would have written the book if you hadn't had that realization or had that moment?
0: Uh, No, definitely not. (laughs) Um, I think I'd had professors in college tell me I should write mostly I think they were basing it on the fact that I'd had a very weird life and they thought, Oh, you've had a weird life. You never went to school. You were raised by these radical people. You should write a book about it, obviously. And I I I again I just felt so guilty even thinking about it. I just thought I just thought it would be a betrayal of them or something. And it just I I thought about it for maybe half a second and then just recoiled, you know, in horror at the idea. So um that was my position for a really long time. I think Later, I, I I still think it's very complicated writing about people, and I think especially people who are alive and people that you care about, people that you love, or at least that you remember loving. Uh, I think I think it's it's an incredibly complicated thing, and you can't pretend like you're not. You can't pretend like it's not an ask, and you can't pretend like it's not affecting them. That's that's a cop out. It is. I think the only. The only defense for nonfiction really of any kind is that you say, um, I my my needs and ideas and experiences also get to be weighted here. Like my need or desire to tell the story uh is is weighted against your need for me not to tell the story, and you have to negotiate it. And it's not perfect. You know, I think for everybody telling your own story, you're, you're kind of telling the stories of other people and there's no way around that. Just like there was no way around me saying, Oh, I have an obligation to my parents cause I'm their child, but I also am a person and get to look after myself and get to set certain rules around what, what self-care looks like for me and what my boundaries are. And I think that there was a relationship between those things where it's, it wasn't the case that I felt like my parents' feelings and needs didn't matter. I still feel like their feelings and needs matter very much. But I started to be able to put my own uh, wants, needs, feelings onto the scale as well and, and try to make decisions based on both and not just theirs, which was not intuitive for me for a long time. How long did it take
1: for you to even – get far enough along into that train of thought to be able to write it down
0: well writing is a very harmless act you know you're you're writing it by yourself in a dark room so and i was always writing i'm not i wasn't a writer i had no intention of being a writer uh but i had kept a journal from the time i was very young so i was writing all this stuff anyway and uh i think the decision to try writing it as a book for me had a lot to do. I, I, I remember thinking, uh, I, I remember thinking I can't really write it because I can't, I can't expose my family that way. They won't like it. And I remember thinking that then it was just a dead project. There was nothing to do. And then, um, I think a couple things happened. I think my parents had convinced a lot of people I was possessed. So their version of the story had really taken hold because I was gone and, uh, there was, there People hadn't seen me in years, and so a lot of people where I was from, my parents' explanation made as much sense as anything. I, I ran off to what they thought, you know, socialist country, and you know, lost my mind or something. It was a very convenient story, and so I think part of it was I, j- I wanted to tell my my side of it, but I think I don't think on its own that would never have that would never have been enough on the scale that would never <laughs> that would never have been enough. I think I think what I was thinking about were. Um, that period when I was at Cambridge and I was at Harvard right before I made the decision to to not see my parents for a year, that year off, my my break that I took, um, there was just like I was so – I felt so isolated and so um, – just the shame I felt was intense, you know, just that if people knew that my own parents – I remember just thinking to myself, how could anyone think that I'm a good person? if they know that my mother does not think I'm a good person. like This is the person that has to believe in you. And if she thinks I'm possessed, then how could I ask anybody to have any uh, faith in me? And that feeling was so strong for me that other people, how could anybody trust you if they knew that you couldn't get along with your family, was so strong. I just remembered uh, wishing so much that there were, were people that you could look to and, and who would kind of admit to having some of these struggles and um I really I especially just wanted to see somebody who was okay <laughs> who'd been through so it just seemed like they were all right maybe uh, it would have been really helpful for me and um, And I just wondered, why don't people tell these kind of stories, a lot of the stories that I read, memoirs I read, and there's some exceptions to this because there always are exceptions, but the ones that I came across in movies or books I read were either these unbelievably um, kind of, you know, hallmark story, it ends perfectly, there's a lot of drama, but then everything comes together and love triumphs over everything and forgiveness and all that. And that felt really out of reach for me. Or, or you get the kind of opposite, which is um, that genre where people have long ago separated from their families and now they're just documenting how awful it was and all the reasons that they that they did that. And I, I think I have enormous respect for both types of stories. I think they have their their place for people in different periods, but they didn't resonate with me at all. You know, I was in a – I was in the no man's land in between where what I – what I felt was not that I hated my family and they were terribly abusive because I wasn't ready to use that word yet. And I also didn't feel like, oh, it's fine. We're all going to recover and hold hands and dance in the field. Like, that was not going to happen either, although I would have really liked that. Um, I was in this weird third place where what I felt was like, I love my family. I I think I think really well of them and I need to get the hell away from them. And that that book, I didn't find so much uh, with somebody explaining why their family was great, why they loved them, why those relationships were so compelling. And then explaining, this is why I had to go, even though it was a loss. It was a real loss. I'm not glad that it happened. I'm not glad I had to say goodbye, but I had to say goodbye. And so I think that there was a, an element of loneliness to it that I felt like there's a reason to write this story because I really wished I'd been able to read it. So there was this, kind of sense of trying to write it for a version of myself that no longer existed. And I think I don't know how often writers do that. that they're maybe actually writing t- to rescue themselves in some way. I think I was writing to try to rescue this older this older version of me and anybody else who might be in that position. And so when I put everything on the scale, okay, in order for a book like this to exist, uh, it's it's not perfect. like I, it, it, there's not a perfect answer. If I tell this story, It's complicated for people in my life, and I have to weigh that against my need to do it and the possible benefit of it. And maybe through distortions of my own um, mind, I decided it was worth doing. But it's not uncomplicated, that decision. And I'll be struggling with that decision for a while yet, I think. I think I had a belief when I wrote the book that I, I think maybe the book is, is founded on a false idea, which is that I think I really believed when I wrote the book that if I could reason out what happened and the choice I made, if I could think about it, if I could intellectualize it or conceptualize it in the right way, that uh, I would be fine, you know, like it would stop torturing me and I would be at peace with it. I could be at peace with the whole thing. If everything that happened, all the choices I made, all the choices other people made, that I would be okay and be peaceful and be whole if I could intellectualize the story in the right way. So I think that there was an element of, of that. If I could just put everything in order and say this is what happened and this is why, and this is the decisions people made and this is what was going on with them, that then it would feel like it made sense to me and then I would be okay. And, and I think there's a, that helped you know, it definitely helped to try to make it make sense in some way. Um, but now I, I have a different view of, I don't think you can just intellectualize those kinds of things and relationships and problems and memories and dare I say traumas. I don't, I think that intellectualizing them is, is a, is not going to get you where you need to go, but, uh, but it was helpful as a first step. And I never meant the book, to be um, permanent, which is a weird thing to say, but I I guess people write memoirs overwhelmingly when they're old, or let's say older. And um, (laughs) it sounds better. Uh, They write it at the end of their lives. And uh, I really, really did not want to do that because I felt like the books I'd read about estrangement that people wrote when they're older, People are so settled with that decision by that point. You know, I, th- I hope when I'm 65 or 70 that I'm not still hand-wringing about this, you know, that I've that come to terms with it. And that story will be so different told by an older person than someone who's still wrestling with it. Just like any novel, point of view is important. And a memoir is no different. Whatever age you write it at is going to have a huge impact on the story that you're telling. Like, uh, Think about if you were writing about the first time you fell in love and you wrote when you were 25, Say you have it when you were 17. You write the book when you're 20 versus when you're 70. It's a totally different story. You know, One is like you're seeing it through the prism of whatever life you had after and all the relationships, children, whatever your life's been. And the other one uh, is going to be much more uh, recent, present. You're not going to have that perspective. So they're different books. And I think the prevailing belief with memoir has been that the older is better, that you want that perspective of seeing your whole – your whole life through the prism of, of everything that came after. And only with that grand perspective, can you then write about your first love? That would be the prevailing belief in memoir. And I think it's just fundamentally uh, and quite obviously wrong because we don't think that about novels. We don't think well what would be really be ideal is if all the novels were written by 70 year old men, like, or women either. Like we don't believe that <laughs> they would all have a very specific flavor. So, uh, why we think that with memoir is peculiar. And I felt like specifically with something like estrangement, the, uh, the, the prism of, of having hindsight and knowing how the story ends is problematic because what's hard about estrangement is not knowing how the story ends and is not being at peace with those feelings at all. And not knowing if you made the right decision and if you're going to regret it. And, um, having really unresolved feelings that's that's what estrangement is it's unresolved feelings and uncertainty about the future and still trying to work out the past it's it doesn't have the finality that an older book by an older person would have so i i i fully believed when i wrote educated that in 10 or 15 years i would really hate it because i would feel differently about uh not just the writing style and the sentences, which you hope you get better as a writer as you get older, but just I, I thought the whole sentiment of it I figured would, would shift and I would no longer identify with it, which has already started happening. And uh, But I, I knew that and I, I decided that was fine. You know, It's an artifact of a moment in a particular kind of emotional struggle and it's not the end. It's It's just a snapshot. Some people will identify with that snapshot and some people won't. I don't always identify with it so you know sometimes I read I've done a lot of therapy in the last year and my feelings have evolved I, I moved on from the intellectualizing of the story and I, I've tried to you know use therapy to start dealing with my feelings about the story and by story I mean my life <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, spoiler alert I'm still here.
1: Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber, and special thanks to Ferrar, Strauss, and Giroux. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. See you next week.